Welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast about neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We were a group of PhD students, but we are now a group of two PhD students and one PhD. I'm Grace. I'm Connor. I'm Josh. Dr. Josh. (laughs) Dr. Josh. Yep. And the topic for this episode is the connectome. Um, So what is the connectome? Who wants to describe it so i mean i think people mean a couple different things um a couple years ago actually larry swanson uh, visited columbia for a while who is larry swanson uh he's an academic or he was an academic he recently passed away but before he did he visited columbia for a while and shared some of his thoughts about the connectome um and there are different things that people mean and i think it depends in part on what community people come from but and I think people have jumped on the bandwagon. But for for I think most neuroscientists, what the connectome means is in an organism having a map of all of the connections between all of the neurons, possibly with weights. So like when you think about having connectivity between a set of neurons, you could have just like is there a connection, kind of a binary yes or no between each pair, and possibly directions on those. And in addition, you could have the strength of those connections. But kind of in in connectomics more broadly, depending on who you're talking to, there are slightly uh, broader definitions that include kind of things like macro scale connectivity or, or, you know, even or intermediate scales of connectivity. So, for example, people talk about using MRI broadly to produce different kinds of connectivity structures. From some of it, you can get kind of functional connections between brain regions during tasks that vary. So there's like a network that's connected in a certain way during a task. But you can also use diffusion tensor imaging, which is a different MRI-based technique that allows you to get kind of the flow of white matter uh, between different brain regions. So white matter is the basically the axons from one brain brain region being sent to another brain region. So you can pick that up because they have a different composition because they're covered in a fatty material. And so between these different, you know, there's these various different levels and kind of there's intermediate levels um, where you might be interested kind of in an animal where you can actually dissect it and look at its anatomy. What kinds of... Uh, general trends are there. So like, does one brain region actually have anatomical connections with another brain region? And this is kind of still macro scale. You're not worried about it at the, num- at the level of individual neurons. You're just kind of saying like, in general, does this population of neurons from one brain region project or, or you know, send axons to a different brain region? Yeah, so this um, kind of regional level of connections where you're just looking, is this brain region connected in some way to this other brain region? Is there some sort of tract that that you can see that connects them? That was, from what I understand, the original definition of the term when it was coined in a 2005 paper by Olaf Sporns. So they were looking at kind of human, uh, the human connectome in terms of brain regions. So that's kind of a larger scale. I think it's pretty clear that today... Most people, when they say connectome, mean the connections between individual neurons, and they mean it in kind of the binary sense, like, is there a connection or not? Is there a synapse that's formed between two neurons or not? Yeah, no, that, I think I think that tends to be true. But then, I mean, we, we, you know, the three of us, I think, are from a certain sort of intellectual academic tradition. And I think when you talk to people, you know, maybe more in psychology or cognitive neuroscience, they piggyback on the term connectome pretty casually to include the kinds of measures you can get from MRI data. Yeah, and there is something called the Human Connectome Project, which is this this original yeah. definition, the the macro scale of brain regions being connected. And and I think moreover, I mean, there are other definitions that are used. So operationally, the Allen Institute is interested in the connectome, and their their sort of definition that they work with is. Uh, is this more macro region. So something you can do in rodents, for example, is to put tracers in. And these can be chemicals that like essentially dye uh, 
you know, tracts or... or uh, so you inject a neuron with a chemical that kind of fills the neuron and makes it visible, and then you can see where all of its processes go, and then you can kind of assume that if, it, if a neuron is sending some part of itself into a certain other brain region, that it's connected, connected to yeah. that brain region. And then, you can, and then you can also do this with viral things where you can cause the, the connectivity pathways to... Uh, to be fluorescent or, or indicated in some way. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm not an expert on these techniques, but so, I mean, the Allen, the Allen Brain Institute does work with connectomes, connectivity, wiring kind of diagram. Yeah, so the, uh, the Allen Brain Institute is this, this private institution that um, puts out a lot of kind of helpful tools for researchers generally. So one of them is this atlas of... Um, mouse brain areas and then uh, information that they've collected about which of those areas are connected. So yeah, that would be kind of a larger scale idea of a connectome. And so they really do a whole bunch of experiments, like unique experiments uh, to look at each pair. Like does one brain region, you know, where does one brain region project to? They, you know, they'll, or where does one brain region receive projections from? These yeah. could be like their own experiments. So yeah, and so yeah, we can we can talk about kind of the traditional methods because this idea of you know looking at which brain area connects to which other area or which neurons connect to which other neurons that's not a new idea. This this uh, emergence of the idea of the connectome is is slightly new. As I said, it was it's the the word came in two thousand five, but people have been tracing neuron connections for a long time, and it's usually with these um, tracers that basically you can put them into a neuron and have this tracer or indicator move in a retrograde way, meaning it's going kind of the opposite way that signals usually go in a neuron. So it's going back towards the input sources and you can see where neurons get input from, or you can have it go in the um, anterograde way, which means going kind of along the axon in the way that the signal usually uh, is, is transmitted. And then so you're seeing where a certain neuron sends its information to. And so that's how you can kind of get at um, where is the brain area getting input from and where is it sending information to? And then you can also do things that are called transsynaptic tracers, which means that you can actually get the tracer to cross a synapse so you can label the cell that one of the, the cell that you've initially put the, the transmitter in. Uh, you can see where one cell connects to another cell and which other cells it connects to. So you're actually getting a label of which cell the cell you initially put this dye into connects to. So I think before we get too much into more details, maybe it's useful to start with like a simpler example. So a lot of this, you know, some of these ideas come come from the study of the worm as well. Not just, I mean, people have been doing this in humans, but right. We've had the, we've had the connectome of the worm for a little while. C. elegans. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So there's, the idea of just looking in kind of individual areas and getting some sense of the connections, and people don't usually call that a connectome, they're just kind of like individual track tracing experiments. And then this idea of the connectome usually connotes a more full description where you're actually kind of getting the full set of connections, at least in a limited area. But, but the, even the idea of this doesn't really make sense in all organisms in the exact same way, right? So that's why I'm saying in the worm, we know the worm is utelic, which means that it has the same every C. elegans, uh, you know, has the exact same cellular composition. So there are the same number of neurons with, as as, as we understand, the same wiring diagram basically uh, in every example of the worm. Every every organism of the same has you know, like they basically are the same organism, which is not the case with humans, right? Humans have different numbers of neurons, and the neurons are connected differently. But with this worm, right, they're they're actually like kind of like more like what we would think of as like clones of each other, right? Mm-hmm. Each instance of that animal uh, is is like has the same connectome, and so it makes sense to have a connectome for that thing because it's got a small number, a couple hundred. So uh, I personally agree with that, but I mean, people in the field definitely believe in the idea of getting the connectome in the full sense for a mouse. Yeah, but so, I I mean, there's going to be clearly something somewhat statistical when you have to average across, you know, or or there's there's kind of another idea, and we can get to this, of, like, having a connectome for a specific organism, like one animal. You could get a bunch of individual connectomes for individual organisms and then maybe talk about the average mouse connectome, which is the average in some way of all of those individual ones. Yeah. 
So, yeah, so C. elegans that we've already mentioned is this specific worm. Um, a very tiny worm. Very tiny worm, yeah. So it has, there are, they're mostly hermaphrodites, right? Yeah, I think and so. And so, <coughs> yeah, they're mostly hermaphrodites. And the hermaphrodites have 302 neurons. There are also males, which are, they arise, I mean, that's like, well, that's kind of a thing people study, right? When when males arise. Yeah, there's They some arise weird more under certain conditions. Yeah, environmental circumstances that lead to... The, the creation of males. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then males have extra neurons for some reason. 80-something extra neurons. Which is quite a lot when you only have 302 yeah. to begin with. So and they're all on their weird. tail, apparently. <laughs> so I don't know. I wonder if they do something with their tail. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> their tail. Right. Um, fair enough. What are these? I mean, neurons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's My still a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so... Brenner, right? Is this the Sydney, Brenner? Sydney Brenner. Yeah. Yeah. What Nobel Prize guy. Yeah. That sounds right. I think so. <laughs> right? I believe he won a Nobel Prize yeah. for this. <laughs> anyway, so he... Something one could easily Google. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Um, so, yeah. He published a connectome for C. elegans in the 80s. So there is an example of an animal... And this is an animal that comes up all the time when you talk about this connectome business, mm-hmm. kind of canonical example, because it's like, oh, well, we've had the connectome for C. elegans for decades, and therefore people ask about, has it helped? What have we what have we done with that information? And but so you know. uh, let's talk about what they mean by connectome in this, in this setting, because in this setting they do mean the the binary connections between all of the neurons. So is there a connection between these neurons? And is it directed? Um... No, well, well, they don't have the normal type of synapse that would have a direction. Okay. So, yeah, this, this is another caveat is that these worms don't have the same types of neurons that you would find in mammals or many other species. Their neurons are just continuously releasing a graded level of neurotransmitter. Yeah. Um, whereas There's in, not spikes. Yeah. Um, so in but most, I guess they're still directed then. It's just that it's not spikes. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I think they have the... People have done... I mean, yeah, so I don't know. So it's very hilarious to me, or hilarious is probably the wrong word, but it's confusing to me often that we talk about this connectome that they got back in the day. Mm-hmm. I presu- have, I, do we know this? Have people, people have done... So there's, there, people did the uh, male extra neurons, yeah. like recently, mm-hmm. and they tried to get out of that data somehow weights. Um yeah, so let's let's talk about what that uh, means. My so understanding is they now have weights for the full connectome. Okay. Yeah, but let's talk about what that means. So, um, yeah, so in in the what I consider the standard definition of connectome in what like kind of people who aren't talking about brain regions, if you're talking about neurons, connectome usually means uh, is this neuron A connected to neuron B in that direction? It usually includes directionality, but it it's just a yes or no question, and it doesn't include the weight meaning. Does this neuron really strongly excite the next neuron? Does it inhibit the next neuron? Is it like an excitatory connection but weak? You know, this is information that isn't usually included when uh, you talk about the connectome. And I think it's worth keeping in mind why, right? I mean, these definitions come from what information is available. So if if you have only anatomy, for example. So we should talk about how they got the C. elegant connectome, which is um, an, an anatomical technique that they used, which is basically... You take this worm, you cut it into very, very, very thin pieces, and then you use uh, an electron microscope to scan those pieces and kind of recreate. Like a stack of Yeah, you like stack these scanned images to recreate the 3D structure. And then since this project started in the 70s, they went by hand and labeled the neurons in each slice. So you had to kind of like look at the slice below and say, like, I see this kind of circular thing. I think this is part of a neuron. And then you see that it's more or less in the same position in the next slice. And so you label it there and you just kind of track the whole thing and look for where there's connections between two different neurons. And then you say those neurons are connected. And so, I mean, this is, yeah, an anatomical reconstruction technique. And so people often refer to this as like reconstruction, right? Yeah. Um. And, yeah, I mean, the idea is, and this is kind of like a standard problem in a lot of settings, is like segmenting images into the interpretable pieces. So here, it's a stack of images, so it's like a 3D 
kind of cube image. And it's got, you know, all the stuff that happens in between neurons and everything. I mean, it's just like a piece of biological mass that you then have to kind of find the neurons in and see where they touch each other. Yeah. And so to to build computers that do this, which is something that people have been doing since then, uh, is to, you know, the task is, is, is called segmentation, where you want to label in those images each neuron as a separate, like, identified object. And then from the segmented images, you want to go to this sort of abstract representation of the connectivity right. between these, like, real neurons, where are they connected, and how strong, mm-hmm. maybe how strong they're connected. If yeah, you but you, so from from the this... e, From the EM reconstruction, you can't get strength yeah. in an obvious way. You, you could can. see, like, how many times does one neuron, like, touch, touch the one, other yeah. neuron or something. But you can't get, like, practice, like, you can't get, like, the physiological measure mm-hmm. of when we you know, cause the presynaptic neuron to, you know, be active, how strongly does it excite or inhibit the next neuron? And an important thing, obviously, maybe not obviously, an important thing that I think is very important and would be kind of obvious to people who do the kind of work that we do is that the the connectivity between neurons changes, right? Oh, Um, over time. Over time. Yeah, during development and experience. During development and experience, uh, so the hypothesis, the broad hypothesis in neuroscience is that much of learning occurs because of the changes of uh, the weights mm-hmm. of connections between neurons. So I don't know how true that is for C. elegant, which is why maybe this I don't know. project is more successful there. I mean, it's more successful because it's a very small creature and you can do this easily. But um, yeah, so the fact that the weights change is, is pretty important. Also, I think it might not be obvious that just the weight values themselves carry most of the information. You can have the exact same connectivity well, I mean, in I terms of... I don't of... know how to quantify the information. Like, okay. I mean... <laughs> well, just you can imagine a, a neural network that has the same connectivity in terms of which neurons connect to which, but different weights will make that network do vastly different things. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah that's definitely true. And so it could be even can't... the sign, right? I mean, yeah. it could be a positive or a negative. Yeah, you can't look at the connectome in this sense where it's just um, if they connect or not and know what that network is doing because a lot of the information yeah is so a missing. lot of a lot of i mean we should say that a lot of these are these points are well summarized by the scientific american article uh that covers the connectome debate um and uh i think you know he, there are a few good points that maybe i'll just briefly summarize right i mean one is that a lot of people in neuroscience will make comments about you know oh well what did we actually learn from the worm and you know, I think many people who don't study the worm might not appreciate that people who, who do study the worm actually look at the connectome a lot yeah. from the worm. I found that interesting. I mean, yeah. I don't study the worm, the, the C. elegant. And so to to find out how much people kind of care about the connectome, I mean, it's not surprising, but it is reassuring that this endeavor to, to find out the connectome of this animal was worthwhile to the people who study it. Yeah. Because that's the question that comes up when you talk about getting the connectome for other species. It's like, oh, well, we still don't know how the worm works. Well, that's not clear. I mean, we, we are increasing our knowledge of how the worm works, and it's not clear precisely what it would mean to know what, what you know, like, when would you know you've solved the worm? I mean, I think one compelling, like, personally, I think one compelling example would be, like, if you could make predictions about when you alter the activity of single neurons and populations of neurons in the worm, if you could predict how that would change both the activity of the other neurons and the behavior of the animal, then that would be like a pretty coherent state at which you you kind of knew the worm. Uh, But I mean, that requires a lot of kind of engineering tools and the ability to flexibly interact with Mm -hmm. neurons so that you and and measure other neurons. Or even if you could, yeah, I mean, can you simulate a worm with the same number of neurons and the, statistically the activity of those neurons looks similar to the activity? Or, or even simulate in a physical simulator to see if you can get the worm to move around for example, and, and, and like, do the right kinds of things. I mean, of course, they're studying it like in a Petri dish, and maybe the worm's not more complicated than that. But, I mean, in, in a dish where it's got some nutrients in certain places and stuff, is it doing the right kinds of things? Uh, so like a simple physical simulator mm-hmm. of the worm. And so there are reasons why just having the connectome doesn't lead you to a full understanding and we touched on some of them the fact that we don't know the weights necessarily there's also neuromodulators which are more diffuse and not related to specific synapses that are kind of changing the whole state of the neuron and how the or of, of the worm and how the neurons in it interact um and then you know you have to know how the inputs are affecting the neurons that pick up the input yeah and, and taken in total there's a there's a thing that i mean 
like the this this comes up in this article, but it, I mean it's something that we would all think about naturally is that knowing the connectivity is you know maybe necessary but not sufficient for understanding the worm. This is like a common phrase in science, right? Because like in math it comes up, and I think it probably I mean I think probably it originated in math. I don't know. I mean, but the idea is that you know if you have some con- some some statement to like prove some statement, you might want to say some other statement is necessary but not sufficient. And so people talk about the distinction between necessity and sufficiency. Yeah, but right, so let's, um, yeah, so the, I, I agree that this necessary but not sufficient thing describes the connectome somewhat well, but... Like, so, do we, do you, cause, I mean, because the statement is, right, just to be clear, right, could we understand an organism completely if we didn't have the connectome? And it, to, to some people, uh, I, you know, who have very different notions of what it would mean to understand the organism than I do, I think they might think, oh, yeah, yeah, we could learn a lot about an organism without knowing it but like to like an extremely quantitative person it seems like well if, if if we actually want to know everything about the organism we need to kind of know at least the statistics of the connectivity and we, we have to be able to make fairly quantitative statements mm-hmm. about about this so like yes we can learn a lot maybe without knowing the connectivity we're not quite sure about that yet but it seems at least reasonable that we might have to know the connectome uh in order to be able to like fully understand an organism, whatever whatever that means in a, in a general sense. But I just want to frame this debate that kind of neuroscientists have been having, uh, and like why it's become a thing recently. And it's, I mean, it may, it basically stems from uh, Sebastian Sung, who is now a, a professor at Princeton, but was previously at MIT, and his kind of decision to pursue the connectome as his main quest of sorts. Um, to, to get the connectome uh, uh, figured out in animals other than the C. elegans worm. Um, and so that uh, that came about quite a while after the, the full wiring diagram was found for the worm. So this idea of, like, you know, we should use this process of scanning images and looking for connections, and that's how we'll figure out the, the connections between every neuron. Like, that was put forth in the 70s and they completed the the worm project in the 80s um but then sebastian sung kind of with after interacting with a professor in germany winifred dank kind of came to believe that the connectome was really important and it would it's worthwhile to get this information in animals that have much larger brains and so therefore it'll be much more difficult to get the information um and so that kind of set off a whole series of discussions and debates amongst neuroscientists about whether it actually is worth the resources that it would require. Um, so it took, in the 70s, it took, you know, 12 years or so for people to, to get this done in this very small animal, in the worm, and um, there was, you know, estimates of how many man hours it would take um, for someone to to do a larger version of this and I think they said for the human brain, it would take like a trillion years, a, t- a trillion man years or something like that for to go by hand and do the same thing that they did for the worm. So, um, I mean, the, the point is they clearly aren't going to do it by hand. Yes. <laughs> and the same way that with like the Human Genome Project, you know, you would you would want to gradually develop technologies that allow you to sequence the genomes of increasingly complicated organisms or whatever. And then beyond that, you want to be able to sequence individuals. And so like now the sort of rush is to get the the cost of sequencing a specific genome down. Here, same kind of story is the analogy that people make, right? First, we want to be able to allow for technologies that are maybe costly and time-consuming and get like one organism, a simple organism, but something bigger like a fruit fly or an even bigger organism. Um, and then gradually we'll allow for costly, time-consuming technologies that can get a human brain. Mm-hmm. And then statistically across humans and then kind of ideally over time we'll develop cheaper technologies to sequence or to to, to get the connectivity for one specific human brain in like a cost-effective timely manner yeah so in some ways the debate was should we embark on the process that will result in the technology that makes this precisely yeah and uh, it wasn't really settled in either direction i mean there are this started you know 10 years ago or so um and there are still debates. Uh, there, are, there are funding agencies that support this and have recently given grants to people who are kind of trying to get at this. There are advances in the technology. This idea of kind of slicing up the, the 
um, tissue is automated. So you can have a process that completely automates the slicing and the scanning. And then there's automation that's being done on the side of segmenting the image, which I I like the fact that it's artificial neural networks that are kind of being put to use to, to segment this neural tissue. I like the, the loop that happens there. Um, but so... There are people who are pursuing it, even though the field didn't really come to a full conclusion that it was worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, so socially just... we should, like, I mean, my understanding, I, I was, what, a kid, right? But, like, when people decided to do the human genome, my understanding was there was more consensus, relatively speaking. Like, people who study genetics kind of all thought this would be a nice thing to have. Whereas in neuroscience, there appears, I mean, there is, I mean, we're aware of, like, a lot of kind of honest debate about whether... Not whether having the connectome would be useful, but whether the amount of money that would go into it could better be spent studying neuroscience. Is that just because there wasn't, I don't know, is that just because of scarcity of money? I don't know. Was there more money or something for genetics when they were... At the time, was uh, it, yeah, I mean, I've, my guess is I that no there's idea. always scarcity. There's of always funds. scarcity of funds, yeah, <laughs> or at least there's a perceived scarcity. I guess there's scarcity. a lot of geneticists, so I presume it was yeah. similar. Then. <laughs> so that's surprising, then. That but also, were... I think, I, I mean, I don't know. To me, kind of being sort of in this field, there's a feeling I think that certain things, like there's a lot of egos in the field, and if people want to be the one doing, yeah, that. and so if it, well, but and also if if. There are a lot of people who are already kind of well-established leaders on various diverse methods in neuroscience. neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And so for a person to uh, be come along and say, I think we should do the connectome, and I'd like to lead that initiative, and I need a lot of money, and a lot of people working under me who are not going to be doing very kind of creative or interesting jobs, but have just kind of like a role to play in this machine of, of getting this work done. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's not a very appealing prospect to a lot of kind of middle and senior people in the field. Like I, I almost think of neuroscience as being kind of sort of having a large middle class or something like this. There's like a lot of people who like want to do the things that they want to do. They don't want to be led. By, and they don't want to be led yeah. by people. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I think it's also there's an honest debate to be had, though, about whether it is. Of course. It. Yeah. 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 Um, but the, the people who are reluctant, I think, are people who have other research agendas that are they're leading. Yeah. Right. I mean, they don't want to lose funding, and as it's not, a, I'm not saying that they should. I'm not. I'm not coming down strongly on the side of the connectome is actually a good idea. That's not clear to me, um, especially given how costly it would be. But it, you know, I, I, I think it's hard to disentangle these sort of social forces of like, I'm a person who's doing relatively well u- using current approaches to neuroscience, non-connectome based approaches. Not me. I'm, I'm now being in the persona of this person. Mm-hmm. That's clear, yeah. Hey, I'm a person who's being successful using the current approaches to neuroscience. Uh, you know, maybe I'm ambivalent about... Investing a lot of money in yeah. something that won't necessarily help me. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely about the resource trade-off. Because I think to most neuroscientists, if you just said, hey, I have the connectome of the brain region you're interested in, they'd be like, all right, let me have it. You know, it's, it's not <laughs> like, yeah, I don't need that shit. <laughs> <laughs> but that's Keep not, your connectome. <laughs> that's not a, a, I'll, I'll find the answer without it. I'm that creative. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a trivial thing, though, because I think there are, I mean, I can think of data sets that I would be like, no, nah, I really, like, I, the, I don't care about that data set. I don't need that. The connectome doesn't seem like that for anyone. I think yeah. anyone would agree that having the connectome would be of some use to them. Um, for whatever brain region they're interested in, even if it doesn't include the weights, because maybe you can have the connectome and then you can kind of sample some of the weights and kind of extrapolate from there. Or, but, or but again, when like we talk that. about the connectome, I think I think it's now, now that we're kind of talking about it more in the broad sense, I think it's worth retouching on this issue of whether there is one connectome. Like, yeah. I'm not clear really what it would mean to have the connectome. I mean, I, I have a sense, right, uh, uh, for like, so people are starting with the connectome of the retina, a, a mammalian retina and they're also you know want to extend to like the rodent connectome like a mouse connectome yeah. and you know we know different mice of the same species and the same gender have different numbers of neurons and you know different connections and the connections change over the course of their lifetime so you know i think that is a key problem and a key part of the debate well, yeah, it's just something that's... to be figured out, right? Isn't well, that so, part of what you would learn? From what this? you would what you would want, though. I mean, the point is, is even if you could get a connectome from like, you, you, I mean, we wouldn't be getting it from one animal. That's the point. We would be getting it from many animals, and we would need to kind of stitch together some statistical story, 
like neurons in this brain region are interconnected amongst each other with these kind of specific cell types with certain statistical properties. We yeah. should kind of um, say also that another problem is that in this method of how you get the connectome, you don't know the cell types. Like you can't look at what yeah, people so usually in look at. In any given brain are, region, there's a whole bunch of cell types. Yeah, and there are certain markers that people use, but in this method, you wouldn't really yeah. be able specifically to. You can look at their yeah. morphology. Right? You can yeah, look at the morphology, like, which sometimes is enough. can tell you yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, okay, the, the point is it's going to be noisy and you're going to need like a statistical picture. And if you use EM, you're not going to have the weights. And so there's all these kind of complicated stories. Um, there are newer ideas about first taking sort of, uh, first probing the circuit in a functional way and then doing EM-based reconstruction after doing so. So, I mean, just, just to be clear, like mapping in general is the term for learning kind of a connectivity structure. And like at the statistical level, when you like look at two cells, you could like probe the circuit by doing kind of mapping experiments where you see what the physiological connections between neurons are. And then after doing that, you could uh, you could try to do like a reconstruction of the of the that volume of, of brain. But I mean, like, it's also highfalutin, this talk of like connectomes of whole mammal brains and stuff. I'm sure it would be useful, but like... It, it's good to, I think, bear in mind how little we know about connectivity in cortex, even at small scales, right? Sure. Like, we don't have a good detailed picture, for example, of how, like, a one, you know, millimeter square piece of visual cortex really looks like in detail. I think lots of people who work on the cortex would really like to have that information, for example. Well, yeah, but that's the thing is that the I think the people who are against the connectome as it's usually advertised um, think that knowing the, the effort that would be put into getting this level of detail would be better spent getting a higher like a, a more yeah no less resolution like the connectome is too high of resolution I don't need to know every oh, okay. cell to every cell I want to know generally what do cells of this type do when they're connecting to cells of this other type so you but want is there a, a cheaper method. way to get that that's the question, and I think that there probably is. I mean, if we put our re- if we can put our resources into getting the connectome and have it be cheap at some point in the future, if we think that that's possible, I think that we can believe in the idea that we can put resources into doing more um, high level. What a, what do cells of this kind of genetic type do in connection to other types of cells? And getting getting at the statistics that we want, which you could get by getting the detail of every cell and every animal and trying to extract it, or you can try to just go for this higher level statistical uh, description instead. This would be with like probably viral techniques. Yeah, viral markers, these sorts of things. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that people have tried to get at uh, the connectivity in in different areas, and you could try to develop those methods. But it, yeah, so the, I mean, you, the you, thing is, those. If have, I understand though, like the, the point is that if you're going to end up with a statistical picture, and take like the most the efficient end, route to it to that statistical yeah. picture, instead of pretending that you're going to get to the statistical picture via like a, 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 a much solid, more detailed yeah, resolution yeah. of... But there are people who think that it is the current, currently the best way to even get to the statistical route, I think. Yeah. I mean, there are, and there are arguments for that, right? I mean, given the, the level at which it... Given the level of technology, usual EM-based technology for doing this, you could probably... Have they done a cortical column? Is that a thing that we know? Um, know. I'm not sure. I mean... I guess my point is just that, like, viral techniques have all kinds of strange problems, like toxicity, and also, like, you can't control things like, I mean, you could study this, and I'm sure people do, but having control over things like probability that a virus will cross a synapse. Yeah, there's a lot of noise. different kinds of synapses, blah, blah, blah. Ratio, like, divergence and convergence, is it, is it you know... Um, there are things that are kind of not really known, at least. So there's some appeal, right, of the EM thing. You go through the piece of tissue and, and well, up to some, you know, there's some sense that you, it's very, it's going to be fairly precise um, at mapping whether or not neurons are connected. So just to say that, like, for certain problems, it's not clear that we have a very viable alternative that would be faster and more efficient. I agree with that, but again, I feel like the the way of getting the connectome for any large scale thing is already not viable. So if we're talking about two not super viable options, you know, you it's can like still where, have where do we debate. put the resources to develop technology? Yeah, and so well for the retina, it is viable, and they have you know. Well, so the they retina they did through well at least partly through crowdsourcing. They have this like online game where you do this yeah, so individual track tracing. 
Yeah, which is I, I like. It's a fun idea. I think it started in astronomy when they were having people label like. I mean, yeah. So this is a cool stuff. idea in general, right? Yeah, but, but it's also like to... we kind of know how this would scale, right? We we know the limitations on how well this yeah. would scale because people are only going to play that game. Like it's just random people online who choose to try and like trace a neuron through this tissue that they they let you look at. Eyewire um, is that what it's called? Eyewire. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, and apparently it got popular in Korea for a little while. For example, so like they actually did. Like make meaningful progress by recruiting, you know, a whole bunch some of Korean reasonable portion of a nation. N- nerdy, <laughs> Korean. No, I think it was actually considered lives. mainstream in oh. Korea. Oh, it was like a good thing to do. Yeah, it was like normal people go home there and was a, do a little there was bit an of advertisement that's worth looking up. Uh, like a quick YouTube look up. You can find an advertisement where like it's it's like a Korean advertisement encouraging people, kind of out of a cross between like civic duty and scientific integrity, to like participate in this game. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very something you would not see in the United States. Yeah, (laughs) definitely not. Um, so yeah, so the crowdsourcing, and then now later on, as I said, the the algorithms they're trying to use are artificial neural networks to automatically parse this information. So, um, I mean, maybe it could scale if it if they get really good at it, but the the techniques right now are still not perfect. And again, you don't have the weights. But it's just like when we take that circuits class, there was a class in Columbia, you take the circuits class and you're reading about all these these papers about the cortex. And it's like, oh, but like do layer two, whatever the hell neurons connect to layer five neurons? And like you ask the three world experts who are sitting there and they're, and they're like, uh, I'm not sure. I think there was that one paper from 1990, yeah, whatever. It's so like, why don't we just not know the answer to these I agree with that in the sense that there should be a concerted effort of, like, just figure out the information you want to figure out. But the question is, do you go this route or do you go some other, um, like, imaging route? Or, like, there are many, there are arguably many routes to figure this stuff out. But they're just going to go this route, right? Like, it's 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 a null debate. I mean, like, this will happen. (laughs) Yeah, it's happening. It's it's happening a bit in pieces. Um, And I guess maybe with recent funding it'll it'll um be happening in, in larger numbers things like the brain initiative i think is putting money into, into this stuff this kind of automating this process fully so that you can just kind of stick in a chunk of brain and stick in a mouse <laughs> living <laughs> living with, put it in a microscope if it uh, kills it i don't know if it goes that far yet but someday probably <laughs> so i i mean so i think we kind of have have touched on many of the sort of relevant controversies and whether or not this is useful. Um, and we've also talked about some of the scientific motivations. There's a whole kind of space of things that people talk about here as like this, like, I mean, there's, there's almost something somewhat spiritual or something about oh, yeah, th- some of the way people frame this debate. There's a cult. There is a connectome cult. It might be a cult of one person. You can join it today. <laughs> I don't know the numbers. But, but, I mean, the idea, right, is that like this is like for people who are into like singularity stuff this is the kind of thing that like people think could be a precursor by people i mean some specific people think could be like a precursor to uploading your brain right if we can figure out how to take you put you in a meat slicer and scan your brain then you'll live forever in a machine um but i mean at, at this point i mean in addition to being kind of crazy and like having all of these interesting philosophical problems about, like, you having to die for, for your brain to get sliced up. Yeah, we, we are examined. very far from the technology that can slice your brain without killing you. Or, like, <laughs> seamlessly transition you from being alive and kicking to, like, immediately Uploaded. scanned and in a computer. Yeah. But, yeah, so let's assume this is going to be like, okay, we, we kill you, we freeze you, we cut you up, we scan your brain slices, then we, like, you know, reinstantiate those in a computer. But, I mean, even even there, like... The idea, so, I mean, there are all these kind of other questions about, like, from the EM, could we get enough information? And the answer is obviously no. We know that <laughs> yeah. you don't get the weights. You don't get any neuromodulatory things that might be of use to you. Like, we know that the EM is not enough. To, it, even if you allow for the possibility of recreating someone's consciousness in a computer because you know all of the facts of their brain the methods that are being put forth for getting the connectome will not give you all of the facts that you would need to do that. And I mean, then there's the there's, debate about if any of that that yeah. I just said made any sense. Yeah, so. yeah. No, of course. And I, but I think that there's like, the, 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 you know, the one catch would be, it's, it's almost as though people want to adopt 
somewhat unfounded philosophical stances about how much information is available in certain things. Like you could assert just like as a stance that you will, will like assert as a, like a belief system or an ideology that you are your connectome and that, <laughs> and that like the connectivity matrix is sufficient to explain your consciousness. Like this, this connectome, this unweighted connectome. I mean, of course this is like a caricature of a view. I, think. I don't, it, well, it I, might be, it I, I might think not this is be. a caricature of a view. So I, I don't mean to like, you know, but you know, certainly the way, for example, media outlets might pick up on it. This is not a caricature of a view. I and would so if the phrase "you are your connectome" sounds familiar, it's because Sebastian Sung gave a TED talk titled that, uh, or maybe he said "I am my connectome." I don't know, but it, there is a belief being put forth by him as a scientist that yeah. if you know your connectome, like you're great. That's he, I think uh, there's a New York Times article that I think claims he he says it's like your essence it's your personality it's your yeah. consciousness it's your everything isn't this all just like making yourself a personality so that you're famous and you get lots of money yeah i mean and, so, is, right? and to say like to say this a bit more sympathetically right i mean people want to say these kinds of inflammate things that would seem inflammatory to scientists they drum up excitement to drum up excitement yeah. now which is kind of valuable is maybe, that valuable right? or not i mean so i i have mixed feelings i mean i think it if you're honest feel... at every step of the way it might be valuable to drum up honest excitement for like honest principles this can't but, be honest but for it like for an oversimplified distilled message that makes things seem so simplistic that like ultimately so like for example genetics is more difficult than people thought it was going to be we 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 we, we got this the the human genome and we still can't do a lot of things with it it takes a lot of time after that it's like a first step and it's you know mm-hmm. Turns out genetics is far more complicated. There's lots of, you know, people talking about junk DNA and there's, there's all these kind of, yeah, and epigenetics is very important. And so there's all these, there's all these kind of additional factors on top of knowing the human genome. And it's like people, I think there, it's not clear to me, again, people might have honestly thought that it would have given more information than it did. So it turns out that like just the human genome isn't that much information. It's useful, but it's not anywhere near the kind of Anywhere near the level of sufficiency. Yeah, I, I think that there are, you know, you can honestly um, kind of not anticipate certain uh, consequences. Like you think that, you know, once we know the connectome, things will really be a lot easier for us. And then it turns out things are really still very hard to understand. That's possible. That is to me. So if if you think it'll honestly be helpful, then yeah, you advocate for it in an appropriate way. You say, I think this will be helpful for science. And then maybe you overestimate how helpful it is to kind of push the mystical angle almost is yeah. that that's a whole different realm. And that it, it is geared toward non-scientists. It's, it's, uh, it's geared yeah. toward non-scientists. And I, I mean, again, I mean, I, I, I'm skeptical that that's even plausibly helpful for science in the long run. I mean, and I don't even want to. Like, this is not just, like, a utilitarian calculus. I mean, I'm kind of morally off-put by hyperbolizing the, the, the benefits of certain scientific developments for non-scientists because it seems kind of condescending and elitist and manipulative. manipulative. But even aside from that, like, taken purely from a utilitarian, pragmatic kind of calculus, it does not seem like a good idea to lie to the people who are paying for you. Uh, I don't know it, because if you even if you win locally in time, if if they don't believe you anymore, then you get well, defunded no, but on a so, longer time. If your life is not very long, then yeah. Matter. So you personally might be able to win a lot by exploit, but then it's kind of like some sort of prisoner's dilemma where it's just scientists are going to lie as much as possible to get the money for themselves. Well, while science is over, do you think that's not happening? <laughs> <laughs> Which science are you doing? <laughs> Well, no, but I, you could. That's a bit. I mean, okay. yeah, we're we being qualifier, yeah, but maybe appropriately. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. We're just the losers, right? Yeah. If we were all faculty members, like- this would be a whole different podcast. Um, no, so I agree that there's lying. a moral element to to this kind of over sensationalizing, but. Uh, it's possible that maybe part of the reason that the brain initiative and all of the money that's flowing into neuroscience through it now yeah. has come from this kind of thing. I big don't know. And then maybe guy, if all of that money does lead to real advances, then people won't think that the original people were lying. 
you know, it's kind of like you sure. can. I mean, so maybe I it's not that hard to trick the people who are uh, yeah, so who I, you lied to originally, right? Maybe it's not hard <laughs> to keep fooling them forever. Yeah. So I think I mean we're 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 certainly open minded about the practical consequences of this. Maybe it will bring more money to science. People will forget the initial over promises, and people will be happy with the quality of the sort of good mundane, you know, good science that that's done. Yeah. And but maybe not. Maybe people will remember and you know. And I think there is people have talked about in recent years things. You know, when people talk about like the anti-vax people and you know other kinds of science deniers or whatever, science skeptics. However, one of few these people who I mean, obviously we don't agree with, right? When people talk about these people, uh, uh, part of the feeling I think is sort of hyperbole burnout. Right. There's a sense that they've been promised so much, so much, and it's it's under delivered, and I it's under delivered in ways where they lose, they they don't trust doctors. When you, I mean, and I, I think that this is true for like, I mean, I'll take antidepressants as like a very specific example. If you go to a doctor and they say, "Oh, this antidepressant's really going to work for you," and then yeah. it doesn't work for you, and they're like, "Oh yeah, it turns out that one doesn't work for like half the people, or mm-hmm. it only works for like four percent of the population." I'll give you this different one, and maybe this one will work for you. Or, sorry, this one's definitely going to work for you. And then you come back a third time because it doesn't work. And then they say, oh, this third one's definitely going to work for you. Yeah. I think this is particularly bad in the U.S., though. Like, okay. you know, where, yeah. like, I mean, medicine is so... Commercial. It's so commercial, you know. And you're, yeah. you get to go to the doctor and just like, cure me now. Like, and it's, you know, and <laughs> the expectations maybe are too high, but you don't know. Yeah, it's unclear who started that kind yeah. of race of... You know, people are expecting things and doctors are saying that they can meet those expectations. It's interesting to me how, like, now that I know a bit about neuroscience after a few years of studying it, it's, like, um, interesting to talk to non-neuroscientists about just the generic treatments for psychiatric diseases, which, I don't know, maybe at some point we'll talk about more broadly, just in the sense that People don't. People don't really have any. I mean, these things are very relevant to so many people, right? I mean, everybody knows someone who has some kind of psychiatric illness, or you know. Um, there's very little understanding, I think, of the degree of efficacy, the kind of resolution of the knowledge on which those treatments are based. Oh yeah. Um, just any sense of really kind of where we are in our understanding of the brain and psychiatry. And yeah, so it makes sense that if someone comes along and says, like, this is the last piece of the puzzle, like, the connectum yeah. will solve if the brain. If you don't know anything and you're just very confused, you're like, okay, oh. that sounds good, I guess. Then go yeah. for it, sure, yeah. and have some yeah. taxpayer dollars for it. I mean, yeah. okay, so, I mean, right, I, I don't mean to, like, undersell neuroscientists. I mean, neuroscientists often have training in, like, physics and, and, you know, difficult subjects or whatever. But, like, neuroscientists, people will kind of assume when they sit here, oh, you're a neuroscientist, you must be really smart or whatever. But that's, you know, that's it, that, That's because people have the impression that the brain is so complex. And as a neuroscientist, you know a lot about the brain. It's like, <laughs> you just know that it's complex. Yeah. That's the thing you learn when you do neuroscience. And, and people who study neuroscience are working, in many cases, with a lot of scientific integrity, trying to solve real problems related to the brain. And they're, uh, you know, competent, intelligent people. Um, but there's no person who's like an encyclopedia of, I mean, there are people who are almost very good encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of the brain of what's known but it's it's what's known they, right nobody has knowledge of like how the brain really works at this point yeah some people have some pretty interesting knowledge of how some very specific things happen in certain situations like sure yeah, yeah. Some, yeah. sometimes like at a at a at a stretch kind of and so, there are people who are like have been in the field for a really long time and probably know like a lot of what's known and maybe have like interesting wisdom and like have a sense of the direction of the field and these kinds of things. And those people are going to be interesting to talk to about, like, how does the brain work? But if you really ask them, like, the kind of things you'd really want to know, like, how does the brain work? Like, how, how, how does How do some, I feel this thing yeah, that I feel when I, like, smell What's happening whatever? in my brain when I have some realization or when I, or you know, like, how, how do I really learn whatever? Why do I forget some things and remember other things? Like, in kind of really, like, what's the real answer? Or like, why do I have schizophrenia? Um, <laughs> but so, I mean, they they don't they don't know. But they and, could and give you interesting speculations. They, they know that they they, they have, they have with wisdom state, right? with wisdom, and yeah. they could tell you like what they kinds of answers might be, and like what would need to be done, right? But yeah, like checking for plausibility is a reasonable thing. But like, I mean, and I've I've had this experience when talking to you know high school students or whatever, asking questions about the brain, 
you know, someone will ask you a question like, what happens when you get a concussion? And if, I mean, and you can answer, you can give kind of medical answers to this. But in terms of like why people's behavior is so dramatically modified, the or answers how the memories and change, how, how memories yeah, change, these things all. are going to be at, at this point largely speculative. And I think people sometimes, and I think as a neuroscientist who's well-established, doing well in the field, maybe you could be sort of seduced by your own kind of mythos. But it's easy, to, it, it's easy for people to confound neuroscientists as almost spiritual guru when it comes to, you know, saying... Understanding what it is to be human. Like, yeah. why, why, why are we experiencing the world as we do is kind of what some of these questions are getting at. Yeah. And, yeah, we don't know. But, I mean... <laughs> I mean, but we do, yeah, we... Neuroscientists we can, are working towards concrete answers to some of these sub-problems. And we can um, kind of fact-check a little bit. Like, there are theories about how the brain works that anyone who knows about neuroscience know to be absurd. Yeah. So, like, do you have schizophrenia because your mother was cold to you? No. We don't, we don't believe that anymore. <laughs> we that don't think I, that was, I think that was a theory. There was some, yeah, that back in the day, there was some belief that, like, mothers not being, or maybe too warm, I don't know, <laughs> either overbearing or not attentive enough would lead to schizophrenia or other disorders. And that, yeah, that seems yeah. extremely implausible. Based yeah. on yeah. what we know about schizophrenia as a disease, that seems very unlikely. <laughs> I had an interesting conversation with the family of a friend recently about neuroscience, and they were, like, asking me questions because I'm supposed to know things about the brain, right? I love those conversations. They're always hilarious. I love sitting there and just being like, oh, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> Next question, like, oh, I have no idea. I was like, yeah, I think there might be two people who maybe have ideas about that, but I don't really know. Um, that's great, you know. But then, like, um, but another thing which is kind of related is that, like, a lot of the a lot of the questions still that are going to be relevant to people, um, the, the ones that, like, you're kind of most likely to want to, to ask about if you think someone knows about the brain or about, uh, yeah, about the brain, I guess they kind of they tend to be psychology questions, you know. Yeah, they tend, they're more about behavior. Behavior, like the thing you just thoughts. said, it's like yeah, you can just do a correlation. Like you don't need to look you, inside you know the brain. I mean? You don't need to know anything about the brain for that. You don't even know how that. You don't even have to know that animals have brains to figure that particular <laughs> thing out, right? I mean, it it helps. It might help, right? Um, but yeah, I don't know. So the, the the gap between, I mean, we all study well, not necessarily, but most of us kind of most of the people that we know and work with directly in neuroscience because none of us work really with med particularly medical people um the kind of things that they're going to figure out are are definitely going to be very low level um compared to these kind of very behavioral understanding like really high level behavior is very far away i think yeah uh, but, but i mean people expect that those will require different approaches where you model the behavior directly right right come up with sort of mathematical models that describe the sort of cognitive processes that give rise to right. more complicated behaviors yeah. and that over time there may be a bridging of the gap right. between kind of low-level biological implementation details yeah so how specific organisms perform certain behaviors or or cognitive functions mm -hmm. and sort of more abstract mathematics which describes those cognitive functions but a really i think a key thing here again when it comes to like the neuroscience neuroscience as it's relevant to like most people is that you know you might say like psychology is kind of the attempt to understand or is one part of the attempt to understand behavior of human descriptively beings, descriptively at yeah. some high level right when it comes to treating high level psychiatric disorders we we use very low level knowledge that's very bad in a way right sure, so yeah. so like you treat depression with serotonin reuptake inhibitors so you're kind of doing something that we have an understanding of at a, at a molecular level. I mean, as in we conceptualize the action of that drug at a sort of molecular, cellular level. Um, but do you know what I'm saying? There's this kind of, there's yeah, a strange, the, the way we, we operate across, we don't, I mean, okay, psychotherapy, maybe you could argue, right, is the treating of the psychological, psychological, at, the psychological level. at the level that we've kind of understood it really. Yeah. But then psychiatric drugs attempt to already treat very high level phenomena at an extremely low level when we have none of the very little of the bridge built right i mean and this is kind yeah. of a, w so, a I mean, way I of think, understanding I th why i think a way to think about how those things arise is because you have someone who like thinks there's a link between serotonin and depression and finds a chemical that affects something that they know how it affects and then they just sort of empirically test yeah. whether it affects behavior yeah and so they're just kind of so there isn't any bridge there. 
there's yeah, kind no of a speculative link that then you can say something very concrete and sound very scientifically meaty meaty yeah substantive You're saying the names of chemicals yeah and so yeah selective sounds. serotonin reuptake inhibitor sounds really like ooh you must know selective. what's going on it's not not <laughs> happy juice or something <laughs> <laughs> exactly. this will make you feel good which mostly it doesn't anyway. but but it's interesting because obviously the connectome isn't going to solve psychiatric disorders even if anyone claims that to be the case but it could help like basic scientists a bit in some domains for certain people. And I mean, to, to be very clear about, I think our stance, I mean, I think all of us believe that neuroscience plausibly over time will dramatically improve medical treatments yeah. for various neurological things. It's just the, the time it takes, you, you shouldn't expect one paper to bridge the gap, like discover something new about the brain and treat some disease, right? There's like, there's a lot of stages going Yeah, the on. bridge is, be, is being built and, you know, things like getting the connectome or getting a lot of data about the brain obviously helps build the bridge. The more you understand it, the more you can connect it to behavior and illness and that kind of thing. How much longer do you think it'll be in the treatment of neurological, neuropsychiatric diseases that the kind of current, you know build an animal model, do something with a drug, if it's if it works, you know, do clinical trials, kind of empirical correlative approach will dominate the addition of treatments that psychiatrists can I mean, because currently like that's how new treatments arise, right? So, so yeah. there's a recent thing we've talked about before of brain stimulation. That's like a new thing. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting. That'd be related to I mean I think right now because until people I mean, if if you're commissioned or, or, or given a grant as a medical doctor or an MD, PhD to do something to treat something, you, you can only kind of take one step away from the problem in most cases. You can say, I think that this problem causes is caused by this thing. Let me try to test something that I think might fix that thing that I think causes the problem. And so that's like about as far as the reasoning can go uh, and still have any like robustness to it. And so I think as basic science builds up to more complicated ex- explanations that are like more that, – that, that, you know, as we come to understand how, for example, the nervous system works in a level of resolution that will permit uh, better descriptions, more mechanistic descriptions of – interesting behaviors and disease behaviors, I think, you know, then doctors will be better, you know, supported and better facilitated in doing that kind of one-step logic. Let's treat this. We have a good kind of mechanistic understanding of what is, could be going wrong. So let's hypothesize this is going wrong and try to treat that. I, I think we're getting there in certain, for certain very basic disorders, maybe we're getting there. Um, you know, there's been, I think there's been cool research in Alzheimer's recently because people are maybe understanding a little bit more kind of the underlying processes that are going wrong mm-hmm. a little bit over time. And, and I think that, that that's leading to cool advancements. Um, I think for even more complicated, I mean, depression is very abstract, for example. And I think that for something like that, it's going to take a bit longer before we can get a kind of mechanistically interesting uh, clinical developments. Yeah. Any final words in the connectome? Yeah, so we went off on a bit of a semi-tangent there about psychiatric disorders and things, but I guess that came from talking about the connectome and getting led into this idea of kind of, which is always in the back of our minds, what will it mean to understand the brain? What do we need to do to understand the brain? Like, we're all kind of agitated and want to take efficient routes to understanding, quote-unquote, whatever it means, the brain and so on. And, you know, psychiatric disorders are something that's in the back of a lot of people's minds in terms of motivation. If not, it doesn't have to be the core motivation. Um, but so, yeah, that's that's how we got into that track, which I guess, yeah, relates to the fact that when it comes to the connectome, neuroscientists kind of wonder and there's divide about how important it is and how much, uh, how many, how much kind of our resources we should put into it. Um I don't know. We have no conclusion about that. Just like the field itself. Yeah. <laughs> Great. We're a little... What's that called? Microcosm. Microcosm. What's a cynic 
Sinecdoche, Doche, Sinecdoche. Sinecdoche. Yeah. What is that? I, I, it's related like a, to this. A right? representative part for the whole. Oh, okay. So something like that, basically. Okay. Are we one of those? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're all pretty similar in our views. Probably not. I guess we would have to do dimensionality reduction to know how many people we'd have to have <laughs> in our group to be. Yeah. Okay. Bye. <laughs>